if you're newly visiting with us here this morning, I'm Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. And we have just started looking at the topic of marriage uh, from a biblical perspective. And last week we saw that God created marriage as a relationship between uh, men and women uh, to reflect God's own triune nature as God. And in that relationship that there's unity and distinctness and love and order in both of these relationships, and that there's a total openness and a vulnerability that is present as each person is able to be completely loved and fully accepted, and no shame or no reason to hide, no, nothing, that is, um, nothing that is hidden or, or to be ashamed of or any reason to be ashamed. And we also saw that that God's design for marriage, like God himself, is completely perfect. But this week we're going to see that the relationship that God designed for marriage to be and the couple that embodied God's design for marriage didn't last in this perfect state. Even though God created their relationship perfect, even though he created them perfect, even though he placed them in perfect relationship, their relationship didn't stay, and they as people didn't stay perfect as God made them. And we're going to find out the reason why, uh, because every relationship, every marriage, even our relationship as human beings with God's creation in which we live has been completely and totally affected in a negative way from what happens and what we're going to see today in Genesis 3. So if you have your, your Bible, find your way to Genesis 3, the first book in your Bible, uh, my Bible, that's about page 8. We'll get you at Genesis 3. Um, and it says this in verses 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Now, try to imagine this. You and your spouse are on the ultimate vacation. You are in a place where it does not rain ever, but the weather is perfect. Where there is a 24-hour all-you-can-eat buffet that you live inside of. Where uh, you're the only couple who is there, and you have nothing to hide, and so you're able to frolic in your all-together as much as you want, and not worry about what anybody thinks, because you are totally open and totally crazy about each other. And instead of having morning devotions, get this one, God comes down every day and walks with you and talks with you personally. And instead of having evening prayer time, guess what? God shows up again to talk with you and walk with you and reveal himself to you and to 
teach you about himself, and you have nothing that you need to hide. There is nothing that you're ashamed of. There is, there is complete openness and intimacy and unity and love. And everybody functions perfectly according to the role that God gave them in creation. And it's this wonderful thing. Now, try to imagine that if you can. Because that is what Adam and Eve are living in. And in fact, she's not even named Eve yet. It's just man, Ish, and Isha. You know, we, we saw last week that's like Alexander and Alexandra that live together. And they're this perfect couple living in perfect environment, in perfect relationship with one another, and in perfect relationship with God. And they are completely enjoying the blessing of God and are blessed by God in everything that they do. But it doesn't last. And we're not sure exactly when, but in Genesis 3, after some period of time has elapsed, as they've enjoyed this perfect relationship together, the serpent comes. And theologians and Bible scholars debate what exactly this means or what exactly is going on here, whether it's uh, Satan in the form of a serpent or whether it's a serpent that Satan has somehow taken control of or what exactly is going on. But throughout the rest of the Scriptures, the rest of the Scriptures make it clear that Satan is in some way involved and connected with this. In fact, Revelation refers to him as the old serpent because of this right here, Genesis 3. And he comes, and he is wise, and he is slick. And he comes, and he starts off with this. He doesn't start out with an outright denial of God's word. He starts out with a question. Did God really say, you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden. Is that what God said? No. Let's go back to chapter 2, and let's look at what God did say. Okay, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. This is, this is God's instruction to Adam, who was responsible then to pass it down to Eve. And this is what he said. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, if I could bring this over into English the way it reads in Hebrew, this is how it would read. Freely you may eat from any of the trees in the garden, but of the one tree don't eat. Because in the day that you eat of that, you will surely die. So you see what God emphasized? He emphasized the certainty of judgment if they disobeyed and the abundance of the provision, which meant that they did not have any need to disobey. There was all of this that you could have, but of one thing, don't do this or judgment will surely come. You hear that? Now look at what Satan says, what the serpent says. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What did Satan emphasize? The restriction. In fact, he magnified, he distorted God's word so that the restriction is all that's there. 
so that it applies not just to the one tree, but to all the trees. And he de-emphasized the possibility of judgment and emphasized the restriction God didn't make and left out anything about the abundance of the provision. He's distorting God's word. Now, the woman is going to distort God's word in a different way. Look at what she says. We may eat from the trees in the garden. Is that the way God said it? No. God said, freely eat from all of them. So she's de-emphasized the abundance of the provision too. And then she says, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. That's true. And you must not touch it. Did he say anything about touching it? No. Did he say they couldn't build a swing in it? No, he didn't say that. He just said, don't eat from it. Right? She's adding to what God said and distorting God's word that way. Or you will die. And she doesn't say, surely. God emphasized the certainty of judgment. She de-emphasized that. She de-emphasized what he emphasized, added restrictions he didn't put in there, and de-emphasized what he did emphasize, which was the abundance of the provision and the certainty of judgment if they disobeyed. And so Satan goes for outright denial because he knows he's got this woman hooked because she's already distorting God's word right along with him. And he says this, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, this is the, this is the hook. There will be no judgment. Does Satan still tell people that? Yes. He says, you will be like God. In other words, you will be in control. You will have everything that you could possibly have. You will be like God. You will be in power. What do we all want? To be the master of our own destiny. To be in control of our own fate. To have power. To be like God. To set ourselves up as the authority over everything. And God knows when you eat of it, you'll be like Him. And He doesn't want you to have that. In other words, listen, lady. God is holding out on you. Has God withheld from her? No. He's given her perfect environment, perfect abundance of everything she could possibly want, perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with her husband, in a perfect world. In what sense is God withholding from her anything that is good that she should have? He's obviously not. And yet that is the lie that Satan tells. And he hooks her. He makes her discontent. And makes her focused on all of the things that she does not have, which is this, this, the one thing. And gets her to focus on the restriction instead of the provision. 
And she's going to know good and evil, just like the serpent says. But now she's going to know it not as an outside observer like God does, who is perfectly good, who understands what evil is, but he's never a participant in it. She's going to know about good and evil because she's going to experience, I used to be good, and now I am evil. And so he lies. Does she understand what good and evil is? Yes, but now from the inside of both of them. And she opens the door. And you know, in John, uh, one, of his, one of his letters, 1 John, he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, or the boasting of what he has and does. And look at this woman. This is what she does. She saw that the fruit was good for food, lust of the flesh, pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. It will make me feel really good, and I will be elevated if I do this. She takes some, and she eats it. And then hear this, guys. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, who was with her, and he ate it. In other words, where's Adam during all this? Standing there watching. He is watching his wife go into sin over a cliff in rebellion against God, and you know what he's doing? Nothing. Nothing. God had put him in the garden to be her protector. And the serpent comes in, distorts God's word, leads her into doing the very thing that God had said not to do, and he is doing nothing. He's standing there like a bump on a post. I got to tell you guys, I want you to hear this, because this is still a tendency that lots of men have. When God has given them specific commands on how they are to lead their families, do you know what they do? Nothing. And very often, the worst thing that you can possibly do as a man is what Adam did right here, which is nothing. To just be lamely passive. And that's what he is. She gives him some of the fruit, and he goes, well... I guess, you, I guess the woman didn't drop over dead. I'll have some too. Stupid. God gave you one command not to rebel against him, and they both violate it together. And then, all of a sudden, cataclysm strikes. Read on here with me. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? 
And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do the serpent's words come true? Well, in a way, yes, they do. Their eyes are open, but they're open to their own evil. They now see, they now see good and evil, but in contrast, I used to be good, and now I have done evil. And now, for the first time, this couple that God had made naked and unashamed, they're now they're naked and ashamed. Now they have done something that they need to hide. And they need to hide from each other and hide from God because they're ashamed for the very first time. And it's not that these, this couple was somehow a dim bulb, you know, like, oh, we don't have any clothes on, you know. Um, we, had, we don't have any clothes on. It wasn't like that. It's now they are ashamed. And so they seek to cover themselves, cover their body with the sin of their soul. And they hide from each other, and they hide from God. They're making little, they're making little fig leaf garments. And then they hear God, and instead of running to meet him as they maybe used to have done, because they had nothing to hide, now they're like little kids. Mom's home, oh no, split. Go to the closet, she'll never look there. <laughs> okay. Um, my little boy, Nathan, came home this week, and we are so excited at our house because our house is noisy and loud and full of yelling, and it's great. We love it, okay, because it's as it should be. And one of the things with Nathan when he goes to bed is he wants to race. Which one of us can get in bed first? I always lose. Um, and he gets into the bed, and he pulls his head up over the covers, and he's giggling and wriggling and whatever, you know, and, where am I, Daddy? <laughs> you know, oh, I wonder where, hmm, you know. This is kind of the idea. God comes walking. This is the God who created these people, who created the universe, who knows the end from the beginning, and God shows up in the garden, and they go, hmm, time to hide. And, and God plays along. Adam, where are you? Does God not know? Is he confused as to where Adam is? No. He confronts Adam because he wants Adam to recognize where he is, that he is hiding from God. Why is he hiding? Because he has done something for which he needs to hide, something shameful. His guilt makes him afraid of a holy God. And so God comes to him, and he asks him, kind of like you as a parent would ask your kids, have you done something wrong? Of course, you know that they have, right? Did, I, did you get in the cookie jar when I told you not to? No, you know, crumbs all over their face, right? He's wanting, the, he's wanting Adam to admit what he has done because they both know that he has done it. And he's wanting Adam to come clean. And, of course, Adam does after a fashion. But look at what his, how his confession works. He says this, The woman, not quite my fault, God, her fault, that you put here with me, uh, also, again, not completely my fault, her fault first, and then your fault, God, because after all, you made this creature, that you put here with me, God, your fault, gave me some of the fruit, 
Oh, and I ate some. Finally takes responsibility, but only at the very end. And so God says, okay, speaks to the woman. What about it? And she says, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. In other words, where do people learn how to, how to shift the blame off of themselves? Starting right here. Part of sin, the result of the fall, which is what has just happened. Sin did not exist prior to this, but they have fallen into sin. Eve, by deception, Adam, by deliberate choice, have fallen into sin, and everything is affected after that. Now, there's more. Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, starts with him first, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, unlike what the serpent said, God does judge, and his judgment is immediate. It happens as soon as the sin is admitted to and discovered. And since the woman left off in her defense of her actions with the serpent, God says, okay, we'll start there. God judges the animal that Satan used first. And the animal is cursed with having to eat dust and crawl on its belly. And I'm not sure what a serpent looked like prior to this. You know, did serpents walk upright or, you know, what did they look like? I don't know. Bible doesn't t- the Bible answers lots of questions, but this is one the Bible does not answer for us. Uh, but evidently, this is a very significant change in the serpent's appearance. And so this isn't just a just-so story about how the snake lost its legs and whatever, okay? That's that's not the focus. It's that God has cursed this animal, and then he pronounces a judgment on Satan himself. He talks about the seed of the woman who is going to come, who is going to crush the serpent's head, even as the serpent strikes this person, the seed of the woman. And what I want you to see out of that is this. That as soon as the first sin is committed, the first announcement of the gospel is made. As soon as the first sin is committed, the first announcement of the gospel is made. Theologians call that verse the Proto-Evangelion. Now that's about a $500 crossword puzzle word that means the first announcement of the gospel. 
that God, God himself speaks to the first couple who have sinned and tells them that one day this, through this woman is going to come a son. And when he is born, he is going to crush the serpent. And he is going to reverse the curse, even as I'm announcing it falling. There's going to be a day when the curse is reversed, when evil is turned back, when the world returns and is restored to how it was originally made to be. Now, one of my favorite scenes in all of film is that scene in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, when Jesus is in the garden. You've seen that scene? And he's praying, and here comes this snake slithering. And Jesus has just finished praying, not my will, but yours be done. What did Adam and Eve do? Not your will, God, but mine be done. Jesus flips that around and says, not my, my will, but yours be done. And he sees that snake, and he comes up, and he sticks his heel on the head of that snake, crushes it. And it's a beautiful filmed moment, because, but it goes back to here, that Jesus is the one who was to come. And they're to look forward to the coming of the, of the seed of the woman who would be born to crush the serpent, to reverse the curse. And it's significant that it happens in a garden. Whereas in this garden there is sin, in that garden there is victory and obedience. God announces, look, death is going to come. And the, you and the serpent are going to struggle now. And there's going to always be conflict between you and Satan down through the generations until one day the seed of the woman comes. You're to trust in him. And he says to her then, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing and, the children, and with pain you'll give birth to children. I think this refers not just to the process of birth, which is much more of a struggle for human women than it is for any other creature. I have not had any children come out of my own body myself, but my understanding is it is the most severe pain imaginable when this occurs. But it's not just the birth process that is painful, it is the bearing process that is painful. Not only have you got nine months of suffering uh, of bringing this child into the world, but as you raise that kid, is there ever pain, ladies? Yes, there is. Because the one that you brought into the world sins against you and rebels against you, just as they rebelled against God. And so her, one of her purposes and where she's going to derive the greatest joy is going to give her the greatest pain. And in her relationship with her husband, it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That word desire appears a couple of places in the Old Testament. One is in Song of Solomon, where it refers to romantic desire for your husband. That's not what it means here, okay? Um, what it refers to here is also referred to in Genesis chapter 4, where God says to Cain, 
Sin's desire is for you, but you must master it. What he means is this. God is saying, you and your husband, who have up to now been in perfect relationship and there's been perfect order between the two of you, now there's going to be competition and conflict, and you're going to want to be in charge. But he is going to rule over you. And it's not a good word, by the way. That word rule over is a word for domination and abuse. Because he is the big, hairy, strong one, and you are the small, soft, weaker one. And what has been up to then, perfect relationship with order and love and unity and equality is now going to be replaced by survival of the fittest and the law of the jungle. What God's design originally was is going to be turned on its head. And then he says to the man, cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil you will eat of it. The idea is, is that your work, which up to now has been tending this garden, is all of a sudden going to become toil and frustration. And it's going to be through toil and tears and blood and sweat that you will eat. Any of you guys that work outside of your home, think of your job as just the most joyous thing that you've ever experienced in your life? Now, maybe it's if it's the first day, <laughs> okay? But a lot of times, it seems like painful toil. Why? Because of the curse. Because this world does not easily support us. Because the world that we live in is cursed now, too. And he says, cursed is the ground. Why do we have typhoons and hurricanes and volcanic eruptions and these things that happen in our world that destroy people? Because the ground is cursed because of the sin of the people that God put here to rule. Fallen people can't live in a perfect environment, and so God causes the earth itself to fall right along with it. And now you get disease and death and sickness, and disaster. The curse is coming. Death is coming. And all who sin are going to go back to the dirt from which they were made. And again, there's... But see this. This is a grace note. In the midst of all this judgment and death and horribleness and cursing, there's grace again. Look at verse 20 and 21. Adam renames his wife. She's not Isha, the woman, anymore. He names her Eve. Eve means living. And she's going to be the mother of all of the living because God did not judge them immediately. He allowed them to live and to continue and to grow and to change and to be redeemed. And God is going to give them a picture of redemption in that he slaughters a couple of animals to give them clothes. He says it's not going to be through a few leaves that you pick off a bush that, you, that regrow next year that there's going to be covering of your sin and your shame. Something is going to have to die 
for your sin to be covered. Again, it's pointing them to the gospel, that someone is ultimately going to come, and that someone is going to have to die to cover your sin and your shame. But Adam names his wife Eve because God has given them hope that the, the death will not always reign. And here in verses 22 to 24, you get more judgment and grace. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God blocks the way to the tree of life, both because it is judgment, but also because it's grace. He prevents them from eating from it and living forever because if they live forever, they will live forever in their sin. And when they die, there's a possibility of redemption through the one who is to come through the woman. So God casts them out and he blocks the way so that no one will die in their sin or who will live, will live forever separated from him in their sin, but can be redeemed because they pay part of the penalty for their sin and their death. They can be redeemed because they're not going to live forever in their sin. To live forever in your sin is to be forever separated from God. That's what being in hell is. To live forever in your sin separated from God. And God loves human beings. And he wants no one to experience it. So he casts them out, cuts them off from the ability to live forever. Now, some of you might be wondering why I've spent all this time on this and what possible effect this has on marriage or why, as part of a marriage series, I'm talking about serpents and snakes and, and fruit and curses and all of that, Okay. And it's this, it's because the fundamental problem with our marriages, and all of us have a problematic marriage at some level, amen? Anybody out there have a perfect marriage in which there's no conflict, never an issue, not a problem? We all experience perfect communion and relationship and love with one another, and we go skipping through the daisies. No, that's not reality. Why? Because of sin. The fundamental problem with marriage is sin. It's that when you stand before God and these witnesses and promise to love, honor, and cherish this person for as long as you both shall live, you are lying. Because you can't do that, and neither can they. And you know why? Because both of you are marrying sinners. And your relationship is going to be screwed up at some level. Because of sin, because you are both sinners. Instead of oneness and unity, there's going to be competition and conflict. Instead of loving leadership by the man, according to Genesis 3, there's either going to be lame passivity or authoritarian domination. We're going to see next week that 
how God in Christ through the gospel redeems that back to the way it should be. But, in, but it's, that's the reality that a lot of people experience. Either a guy who kind of limply follows along, yes, dear, or a guy who's like, I'm the man of the house. Get in line, woman. Yeah. Neither one of those is biblical. Okay? Instead of loving leadership, you get either passivity or abuse a lot of times. Instead of respectful following by the woman, there's a continual desire on the part of women to usurp their husband's role. Instead of joy and childbearing, there is pain. Instead of naked and unashamed, there is clothing and no end of guilt. Instead of easy coexistence with creation, there is blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Instead of walking with God in the cool of the day, they are cast out from God's presence, and the way back is blocked by angels and a flaming sword. Instead of perfect harmony, in other words, it's the perfect storm. It's a mess. And it's that world that we are living in that when we get married. And it's because we are sinners living in that world that we struggle and we have trouble. And we, in the words of Garrison Keillor, uh, get married to find the one special person that we can annoy for the rest of our lives. <laughs> okay. Uh, we do that. Sometimes that's true. Why? Because of sin. Fundamental problem with us is that every part of our hearts is bent towards sin and selfishness and me. Instead of being focused on the good of the other person and honoring God, we are focused on honoring me and getting my needs met. And what about me? And I'm the me monster I turn into. And, and when you carry that into marriage, you, instead of being a self-giving, self-sacrificial person, are a very selfish person, and it doesn't work. But you know what? The solution to Adam and Eve's problem is the same one. It's the solution to all of our problems. The gospel. Belief in the one who came. Not who was to come, but who has since come who has crushed the serpent's head and reversed the curse through his death and obedience to God and through his new life in his resurrection, we can have new life. We can actually have marriages that work as we're obedient to God. And instead of trying to put together the puzzle of marriage with the wrong box top and pieces that don't match, we can be putting together puzzle again the way that God designed it to be. Let's pray. God, our Father, we confess that we are all sinners, all deeply 